Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Our Experience. This is me, Tom Hansel, with my co-host, Chad Wurst from ASCP. And we are almost into football season, just getting at the beginning of it. So we're going to talk about political footballs, home health version. And today we've got a guest with us, Veronica Charles from Maxim Health. Political footballs, home health care, let's be real. The future of long-term care is at home. Home health is beginning of that, and just like nursing homes who once were rest homes, home care will become more sophisticated and with that need more sophisticated services. We know those services will mirror skilled nursing home services from long-term care providers. Veronica here is a former ASCP policy and advocacy leader and now runs policy for a large home health care company. Let's pick her brain today. Veronica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Tell us a little bit about your background. Great. Well, I'm very happy to be back at ASCP. Um, I worked with the staff here for a couple years in our policy and advocacy department and loved every second of it. So I care a great deal about long-term care, about our nation's nursing homes, and definitely about where it's taking us in the world of pharmacy. So really excited to have this conversation today. You know, one of the things that I think we've taken a lot of pride with since we started, since I started five years ago, is bringing back some of the um, traditions that ASCP had, one of which was bringing back our executive fellow, which uh, had gone through a period where we didn't have one. And when I got here, reading through the list of people that were executive fellows, they now reside in different places in the Beltway, in different positions, and having experienced ASCP, they bring a lot of value back to ASCP as kind of alumni. And I put Veronica in that category. Veronica came to us um, when we had restructured our policy and advocacy team. Um, She immediately had impact. She continues to have impact. She set the stage for people like Jim, who uh, now fill that role um, and do that work for ASCP. And she uh, certainly is a source of pride for me personally and for ASCP as one of our distinguished alumni. So we're really thrilled that she's here. Um, just some personal things. If you notice behind her, this is a this is a different kind of podcast because Tom is off-site and our guest is on-site. So she has taken the liberty to put her Nevada gear uh, behind her uh, in the in the screen of the podcast, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into it. But you you won't be surprised that she is a very fervent Nevada supporter and former citizen. You know, maybe still citizen of Nevada. I don't know. Well, like we you, can't you talk carried, about that. you carried your license <laughs> as long as possible. I remember that. Um, so, and and she has a very infectious laugh. She's a wonderful personality. She has the loudest laugh next to our producer Krista, who actually has the loudest <laughs> laugh. <laughs> so, tell us about your career since you left. Well, I do want to note that the stuff behind me is actually Chad's Nevada stuff. Oh, that's right. So it is. He also <laughs> loves the great state of Nevada. Um, As instructed. (laughs) So, obviously, I love ASCP so much. A great deal of my career has revolved around all of the things that ASCP fights for. Since leaving ASCP, I've joined Maxim Healthcare. And Maxim is a large home health provider, and it's in a little bit of a niche area. So, we really focus on private duty nursing, which is a type of Medicaid, home care, and home health. And a lot of times when we talk about home health, we really think about you know, your typical 
going in intermittent care every hour, a nurse going in there, changing up meds, getting out. And, you know, Maxim still has its hand in home health and home care writ large, but our bread and butter is really going to be private duty nursing, which is by and large kiddos born with disabilities that are going to require 24 hour care, lots of specialist services, and oftentimes those children, if they grow into adulthood, then we'll also have adults on our roster. So uh, we really cover the gambit of services across the home care and home health spectrum with again, the private duty nursing focus. So since I have left ASCP, I run a policy shop across 37 states. So Maxim is very involved at the Medicaid level, which is where a lot of our home health and home care policy issues are happening. But then also we have a federal presence. So I'm all over the place for the first six months of the year and then right back here in the Beltway to figure out what's going on at the federal level throughout the rest of the year. So this is really a good time to be back in DC, really focused on gearing up for the next uh, package of congressional bills, and then also gearing up for another very politically charged year of appropriations at the state level. Um, so one of the things we talk a lot about is, you know, the next six years, the next decade after that, the decade after that, because obviously in the older adult space, we deal with a uh, specified number of licensed skilled nursing beds, which is around 1.7 million. About 4 million people put their head down on one of those beds every year. Some, most uh, of them are transitional in nature. They spend a few weeks in the nursing home and then go home. A, a good number of them spend the rest of their life in the nursing home. And they're generally dual eligible, so they're Medicaid paid as well. What we see in the future is there isn't a big desire to have more nursing home beds. We're not licensing more nursing homes, um, but we're going to have 50% more people in the age group that tends to go to nursing homes. So we're going to strip the supply of the nursing homes. We're going to fill it. They're going to be filled with the most acute, most sophisticated individuals, probably uh, those with the worst um, dementia and psychotic issues. But it's going to force a lot of people into assisted living and ultimately a, a lot of people into the home. Your area, as you describe it, works with kids that are Medicaid that can have private duty nurses. To my knowledge, that doesn't exist for a dual eligible Medicaid individual that's on the other end of the age spectrum. Is that true? They it can't does have? in certain circumstances. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is yeah. that something that you envision expands or is it also kind of not a solution the government wants to see? That's a great question. And I think we talk about that a lot at the federal level because, like you mentioned, not looking into licensing more nursing home beds, but they're also looking into restricting, you know, a lot of different areas of healthcare. So thinking through what they're going to have to do with these acute patients, uh, you know, really right now, the most acute patients end up in a hospital. Um, you know, if you get sick, if something horribly wrong happens to you, you go to a hospital. And there's really nothing that's ever going to replace that. Right. Nobody's ever going to say, great, I live in the middle of rural America and I don't want to go to a hospital. They always want to go to a hospital if something's seriously wrong. So, you know, hospitals have really been getting into the game of going into skilled nursing, you know, trying to figure out what that looks like. So I definitely think we're seeing an expansion there of them trying to own the fact that the most critical care is always going to happen in their facility. Um, 
But then also, I think that we're becoming more aware of after the pandemic, of course, just the focus on home health, that you can build an ICU or a PICU in the home setting. You're going to have less folks there, but it's going to be a heck of a lot cheaper. And the VA has been doing this for decades. The VA has been trying to push their most acute veterans, uh, medically discharged, active duty service members into the home for quite some time because oftentimes our veterans are not nearly close to a VA as we want them to be. Um, so I think that they're definitely looking at the VA for things like that, but then recognizing that there's just some other pressures of who is now starting to enter into the long-term care space with this silver tsunami that we're experiencing. And do you see that as a path? I mean, the VA has always been innovative. They're certainly innovative on the pharmacy side with their primary care pharmacists. Um, they have some, some level of long-term care pharmacy services that they provide most of the time they contract out. But do you see that as a, as a template for what this industry should be looking at in terms of what may happen in the next two decades? I think it's hard to say whether or not it should be because uh, it's tough from a political perspective anytime you compare the healthcare system to the VA system. It is not the same thing. We cannot look at those same levers and determine what it's going to look like. But I think that whether it should be or not, it is setting the stage for what home care is going to look like because they've just been doing it for longer. And, you know, government's not innovative. They don't know how to be innovative. So they are just looking to somebody that gives them an idea. And I think the VA has offered more ideas than anything else has. Interesting. So, Veronica, you talked about um, the IDD and kids with, with, with the IDD, correct? That That's your guys' main focus? Could be IDD. It's, um, you know, a lot of CMS, HCBS waivers. So whether it's going to be a dual eligible population, whether it's going to be kiddos on IDD, if they're going to be on an individual Katie Beckett waiver, nothing has so my, a specific direction in this program. Gotcha. My, my uh, understanding is a lot of um, IDD patients right now really have their care primary caregiver are the baby boomer generation. And so as the baby boomers continue to age and, and, and pass away, a lot of these uh, IDD uh, patients really won't have a home caregiver. Is that, do you find that to be to be accurate statement? And, and if so, kind of what do you project as far as the growth for like group homes and other areas like that? That's a really great question, Tom, and I think you're spot on. So the vast majority of the folks that we have found that is, you know, better suited for this type of long-term daily care are going to be physicians, clinicians, nurses, speech pathologists that are in like the swan song stage of life. So oftentimes they go into a facility, you know, they've worked there for 20 years. It is tiring. It's exhausting. They really want that one-on-one -on -one patient care. So then they find themselves in this space. So it absolutely is the baby boomer generation. I would say that that's pretty accurate. There's also just a lot of state and federal criteria for what their training programs look like. So, you know, if you're a pharmacist that just does, you know, uh, hospital care, it's going to be different, of course, than if you're a consultant pharmacist, but then you have to have even more additional training if you're going to work at all with children. So a lot of those nurses will just by and large, because of the training that they have to get, they're going to be a little bit older as well. So that's definitely a problem. Uh, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, one of the big things that I think shows us quite frankly, the problem that we're going to have very soon is BLS says that we're going to see 25% more 
clinicians go into the home care space between now and 2030. Meanwhile, we're going to have 30% of the healthcare system directed into home care. So if you have 30% of patients in there and you're only going to get 25% more people, we see definitely a workforce shortage there. Um, and of course, the age is, is part of that and why we're not going to get as many caregivers and clinicians in that space. So it's a, it's a concern. You know, you don't, you obviously don't work with ASCP issues directly, but one of our big issues is to create a path for pharmacies that have become uh, very skilled at delivering medications into nursing homes with compliance packaging, having emergency 24-7 services, doing the medication regimen reviews or the admission reviews from a pharmacist. And we see that array of services as something that is going to be necessary for people at home because, again, there's going to be more sophisticated people living at home, desiring to live at home, but they're going to need these wraparound services. What would your, what puts your like prognosticator hat on and say, what, what's a path we should take? What do you see the government doing as it relates to that? Um, being able to extend some of those services that may have always been only for nursing homes now being extended to people that are eligible, meet a certain set of criteria, but need them in their home. It's tough. You know, thinking through what that looks like, especially with wraparound services and, and pharmacies specifically, uh, I think ASCP and the rest of pharmacy is already focusing on a really important area, which is quality metrics. I think HHS at the federal level is having an identity crisis in the sense that they want to change the way in which people receive care, but they also have not a freaking clue how to grade that care. So if we're saying, hey, we have enough technology now that people are just going to do telehealth visits. You don't need to come into the doctor on a you know, yearly basis for that physical. We're all going to do it through this new technology. That's great. What's going to happen in facilities, long-term care, nursing homes, assisted living, is we're going to see more acute patients. I think that's also going to be the same thing in home care. So when you see more acute patients there, but then you're graded on keeping people out of the hospital and making sure that they're extra safe, but you're only getting the sickest of the sick and the most needy patients, um, we're going to have to be working primarily through changing the metrics so that people want to get into that business. Providers want to get into that business. Um, you know, whether it's for-profit, not-for-profit, they have to see a way in which they're going to be successful. And the current metrics that exist across all different aspects of healthcare are not going to permit us to take care of the most medically fragile aging population. So with that, with, with that technology that you were just talking about in telehealth, really comes the subject of RPM or remote patient monitoring through, you know, blood pressure cuffs and glucometers and, and that kind of stuff. Tell me kind of from your perspective, have you guys started or ha have you working with, with, with RPM? Are you finding that as the avenue for, for reimbursement and revenue generating? I think it is an avenue that is reimbursement generating. They, you know, CMS and uh, so CMMI doesn't typically, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation do a lot of different pilots that are really exciting. They've done a lot of stuff with pharmacy, but anytime you touch innovation, you're really gonna look at CMS. CMMI doesn't look at those reimbursement techniques. Um, so I think that it is an opportunity, but it doesn't get, you know, I think that the biggest thing is that people see a way to reduce stress on the workforce by using this technology. You can't reduce the stress on the workforce. You're still gonna need somebody to go in there and monitor it. 
And I don't necessarily know if I want a CNA to be the one that goes in and monitors that. Mm -hmm. I want somebody at the highest degree level possible practicing at the top of their license like a pharmacist to go in and um, you know say what that looks like so I think that they're going to have to reimburse but right now I, that's definitely not what they want to do you know they want to implement these things and then say great we fixed the workforce problem but you still need the checks and balances there so the, how does it work today in the current environment that you represent with pharmacy how, do, how does pharmacy weave into the services that um, Maxim Health provides? I don't think it does in a lot of different ways. I think that, um, you know, we have a couple different areas that pharmacists are important to at Maxim that we're not necessarily utilizing right now because we're not able to, because pharmacists are not being utilized in this space. Um, it's definitely a constant thought process. I think that folks across the home care gambit in some other areas have tried to use pharmacists, but the lack of reimbursement makes it very um, unattractive to hire pharmacists for these positions because they know that they're going to have to pay them out of pocket and they don't get, you know, an added bump in their value-based payment arrangements with plans. Health plans are not looking at that. Um, if we were to look at, you know, the opportunity, I'd say that we see more clinician diversity with plans so it's not going to be your straight medicare but if you were looking at like a medicare advantage patient or um, a dual eligible that's utilizing an mco through a state so maybe a state that does statewide contracted mco planned managed managed medicaid they would be more likely to say hey we want somebody at the highest degree possible to be looking at this type of stuff so um, you know, sometimes we can see value-based payments added in there, but it's, it's a problem with reimbursement in general. And I think the other thing is, is, you know, a little bit of clinician infighting that we talk a lot about and definitely came up a lot at ASCP in that, you know, pharmacists are so critical. And I think everybody in the home health field recognizes that. And every time we talk about the need to get pharmacists reimbursed, and I talk about this on a pretty regular basis, everybody says, yes, we agree but then nobody is there really driving that point home. So it's hard to say we want doctors paid more, nurses paid more, therapists paid more, we want CNAs, LPNs paid more, and pharmacists. So everybody picks and chooses. So it's difficult to get you know all of those reimbursement measures in place for every provider that needs it. Have you guys had, had that experience or thought about partnering with, with different pharmacies that would be willing to provide that level of care and then encouraging those patients to to work directly with that pharmacy is it been anything like that has happened for you from a policy and advocacy standpoint no you know we have not thought about how to improve this in the eyes of governors state legislators members of congress through the value that a pharmacist adds um, whether or not those conversations happen at a different level you know i think they do from just who we want to bring in to provide the most value but I can't say that it's it's a big focus of, of the home care industry right now, you know, even if it should be. I don't think that that's where the ball is. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I didn't know if a lot of those nurses were challenged or fed up through the operation side of it. Uh, Ma'am, you know, this pharmacy is unreliable or we're dealing with these mail order pharmacies or just whatever struggles sure. they were having. I, I wish we had a pharmacy that could do all this value added stuff like a long-term care pharmacy does, but for our home care patients. I didn't know if you had experienced any of that in the, in the past. Yeah, 
yeah, I think that um, those conversations do come up. Um, again, coming from understanding the levers of incentives that are at play, I don't know if it comes up on a daily basis that's just a, a light bulb for anybody that's like, ah, this yeah. is what's going to change the game for us. But that's because right. it hasn't been presented um, you know, before. I think that ASCP has a big advantage by a lot of the work that they're doing in this realm. Um, I think it is still a topic of conversation. Whether or not it's come to the forefront yet, it just may not have had its time. Definitely politically, but as we've seen with the pandemic and a couple other things, you know, we um, every different healthcare provider gets their moment. And I think that pharmacy will still have the opportunity for their moment, um, you know, in the future. We'll pivot, you know, before we close um, and tap into your other skill, which is the political skill, um, since you brought it up. Next year is an election year. Um, healthcare is, I, I don't, you know, healthcare is not going to move from one of the top priorities for the United States in some way or another. Um, right now, we seem to be focused on PBMs and drug pricing, and that'll probably continue. There'll be other things that come up. I think at some point, grappling with the older adult population is going to be something that comes up, especially as it relates to Medicare. Um, what happens next year? Who's going to be our next president, and what's the political environment going to look like? <laughs> our next president that's not in jail, that is. Right. <laughs> It is always tough to say who's going to be president. You're not supposed to read the tea leaves. I did once. I was wrong, so I try not to do it. I don't know who the president's going to be. Um, polling is broken. Whatever you read in a poll, don't listen to it. It doesn't matter. Um, it's not going to tell you anything. So I don't know who the president's going to be, but you know, thinking about where things are going, uh, Congress is they are losing the ability to multitask. So there's a focus on drug pricing and PBMs right now. And that is where the focus is. So if you have something there that you think could move, congratulations. They have worked a little bit on home care because of the pandemic, so there was a light shown on that. Um, they've quickly realized that it's very complicated, very convoluted, and across a thousand different programs. So they don't like it as much. But I think you know that you have to be in one of those areas to get any attention right now. Nothing new is flying off the press in Congress. Um, we really have one more opportunity um, to get anything passed this year. It's going to happen at the end of September. I was on Capitol Hill this morning chatting with a couple different folks, and they said, you know, we basically have two weeks to get things introduced. It's August in D.C., so that means that the Beltway is relatively quiet. I don't know who's pitching new ideas these two weeks, but I don't think it's a ton of people. So we really have one opportunity coming up. It's going to be tied to an impending government shutdown, um, the government shutdown seems more likely than it does on a typical basis because um, just a lot of the reauthorizations that are at play there, if, this, if you're going to get anything passed in Congress, it's right now. It's when you attach it to this budget. So I think that's a big consideration to happen that will affect the presidential election as well. Um, so a lot of things are going to be in the works in this September budget deal. And then moving forward to next year, um, depending on who sits in that Oval Office, I still think we're only going to be able to tackle two, maybe three healthcare challenges. We just do not have the ability to pass through large healthcare packages like used to be the norm. And do you, what do you think about next year? It's an election year. I think when I got here, I got here at the middle of 2018. We had an election year, obviously in 2020. 
What's what's next year going to be like for anybody? Because it's a presidential election year. Is, does anything get done? Well, honestly, it doesn't matter who the president is. Right. It matters what the rest of the power in the House and Senate is with the president. Yeah. So if we flip and we have a Republican in the White House and we keep uh, Republicans in the House and then we still have a challenged Senate, you're going to see some things um, and vice versa if Joe Biden stays in the White House and they're able to flip the House back to Democratic control, we're going to see some more things as well. Um, typically, by and large, next year, if things were to flip and one of the 12 Republican candidates end up in that White House, um, you know, we do see a lot more state action. So pushing things down to state levels, pushing a lot of um, new opportunities for managed managed care. So we're going to see payers try to innovate more at that level. Um, I think that regardless of who comes into office, based off of the time period, CMS has been trying to redo their um, home and community-based services metrics. They're still in that process. They've been in that process for years. So I think that we're going to see a heck of a lot in that space, whether it's new payment mechanisms, the way that they removed rugs and replaced it with PPS, or what that's going to look like. I think you're going to see something. One of the things that we're going to see in the next eight years under regardless of what administration is likely going to be payment reform for home care and home health because it hit long-term care and it hit therapy and there's always winners and losers but they have not figured out a way to bundle home care and home health once they figure out how to bundle those services which i think they will there's going to be an opportunity for more types of of healthcare clinicians to come in but I think that's the constant challenge that, regardless of who's in office, CMS is trying to figure it out. But they definitely need support. And speak just about, and we've talked about next year's, in terms of next year election and what shifts, but what about the run-up to next year's election, the 2024 election? What gets done in D.C., the front part of 2024, when everybody is campaigning, the whole House is campaigning, the President's campaigning, um, I don't know what what percentage of the Senate is campaigning, but it's a percentage. <laughs> like, what what can possibly get done in twenty twenty four from a legislative perspective? Well, you know, it depends. It depends on what state they're in, who they're trying to get support from, of course. But you know, healthcare is really only top of mind in the middle of pandemics. Yeah. And you know, at other times that it's come up on a ballot in a large state which it did not this year. California is not hammering over any uh, health care initiatives, neither is New York, which typically drives a lot of the conversation at the federal level. You know, it's really going to be more labor laws, workforce is top of mind, of course. Um, a lot of stuff about the economy. So whatever bills that they can pass for new roads, new bridges. Um, they brought back earmarks in a way this year. So I think that we're going to see some deals where members of Congress are going to mark some things for their constituents that they need votes from. Yeah. So we're going to see some more projects that are very visible, um, paying clinicians more and uh, changing certain aspects of the healthcare system is tough, difficult, and it's usually invisible to the the naked eye and it's not a hot topic for election years unfortunately right. and we had a surplus of money from the past several years into the healthcare system to try to buoy patients and caregivers and all clinicians throughout the pandemic 
So it's going to be a tough year to play defense. I don't imagine a ton of offense. I think providers are going to have to play defense to make sure that they don't get cuts um, since the, the budgets are just not looking as great as they were for several years. Awesome. Tom, any closing thoughts, questions? No, just, yeah, and thank you for the knowledge and, and, and your information. I appreciate uh, your continued dedication to ASCP. It's Always. certainly uh, our, our biggest voice in, in long-term care. So just looking forward to uh, maybe getting you back on, uh, next year to talk about more of the stuff when we get close to the election. Absolutely. Perfect, but didn't you didn't write anything down about my political I'm all, predictions. I'm always writing it down. <laughs> I'm always... I'm calculating and observing and judging. Well, thank you, Veronica. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for being one of our most outstanding alumni. Um, I'll take that award. We'll catch everybody on the next episode. If you haven't registered for annual meeting in Orlando, please do. Uh, it's coming up at the end of October, October 26th through 29th. It will be spectacular, and we would love to see everybody there. Uh, maybe we'll even get uh, Veronica to come down. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Our Experience.